Let's talk oral surgery. This is Marcus Huang. So no housekeeping today. I'm going to get right into the episode. So my guest today is Dr. Chandra. He is an associate professor of surgery at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. His training is a little bit different than most people in that he did his oral surgery residency twice. Uh, He trained in India uh, for his dental training and also his OMFS training. And then he went to London to get his medical degree from the St. George University School of Medicine. Then he came to the United States and he trained in OMS again at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, which then after he completed a fellowship in head and neck oncologic surgery and microvascular reconstruction at the University of Florida. This episode is titled, How to Future-Proof Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery. And I have been thinking about this because I have been away on my medical rotations, so I haven't been doing any oral and maxillofacial surgery at my time at my program. And, you know, it got me thinking about why is this relevant to me? Why am I wasting my time? And although I'm getting a great insight and knowledge about medicine, it made me think about how is this relevant to me? And fortunately, I was able to get out of this rut, when I attended a lecture hosted by uh, Dr. Chandra, who is also my guest today, and he was talking about the future outlooks of oral and maxillofacial surgery and associated residency programs. We've all experienced this in a conversation or the like about turf wars, whether oral and maxillofacial surgeons belong in doing head and neck surgery, doing cosmetics, whether GPs should do bone grafts, periodontists should do implants, or so on. And these turf wars continue. The conversations has come up often since I was a dental student all the way up to me being a resident. And I also hear some of the seasoned surgeons talking in these kind of manners. And it's important. We have to protect our specialty in some way. But the inevitable truth is that the boundaries between specialties, the boundaries that define your specialties, It's blurry, and it will ever so become more blurry as we go forward. Does the future of medicine, does the future of healthcare depend on the profession you are in, or does it depend more so on the problem you can solve? Patients will always present to you with a problem. They don't present to you saying, I need an oral surgeon. They say, I am missing a tooth. I need a cleaning. My jaw is too small. I have a tumor in my jaw. They don't say, I need this and this surgeon. My conversation with Dr. Chandra made me think more about how the future will look, and it seems like the future will be based on the problems that you can solve, and how good you solve that problem will lead to your success in that domain. Just because you can do implant surgery doesn't mean you should be doing implant surgery for everyone. If you are not trained well to do anterior implants, maybe you shouldn't. Or if you're not trained to do head and neck cancer, maybe you shouldn't. All in the protection of patient outcomes and safety, of course. I'm involved in some various study clubs, and so from my dental colleagues, I am often very surprised on the scope of practice that they do surgically. I have some friends who do, I know GPs who do all-on-fours, and there are periodontists who do zygomatic implants in certain parts of the country. And this will be more common as we go forward. Here on the West Coast, where I trained at the University of Washington and right now here in Oregon, GPs seem to have a pretty full-scope practice where they are surgically doing quite a bit. And I know of some GPR programs that focus only on teaching you how to do third molar surgery and sedations. <laughs> my, uh, my close mentor, Dr. Mark Engelstead, he was a guest here on the show, he said to me one time that If our profession is defined as the jump from the second to the third molar, then we are in big trouble. Dr. Hupp actually wrote an article about this titled Retreating to Our Cottages, and it is in reference to our profession leaving dentistry to expand our scope in cosmetic, head and neck, oncologic and reconstructive surgery, TMJ surgery, and so on. But then now the interest has waned or it has gotten too hard to pursue these expanded scopes. And so we're retreating back to dentistry, our, our home. 
And as we retreat back to our cottages, we arrive realizing that dentistry has moved forward without us. And so the question becomes this. Does a profession matter as much as the problems you can solve? And if so, I encourage my listeners to continue to develop specific knowledge, to develop specific skills, to move yourself forward, and to ensure that you don't get left behind and become a source of irrelevance. Now I bring you Dr. Chandra. All views expressed on the show and the following episodes belong to the host or the guest and do not represent the opinions of any entity. Dr. Chandra, thanks for tuning in on this, uh, what I would say, a very spontaneous um, podcast. Thank you, Marcus, for having me. I appreciate your efforts. You are in Nebraska right now. How is it over there right now? Well, we are just out of a foot amount of snow, so it's been pretty cold and uh, freezing right now. In terms of COVID, has the vaccinations been a success out there? The uptake is fairly low, but the rate of infections has certainly come down or is on the downslope. That's good to hear. I think here in Oregon, it's actually on the rise, which is extremely frustrating. I have been waiting for the uh, gyms to reopen for the longest time, but I keep getting emails from the governor saying that it's been extended and such. But, you know, really great having you, Dr. Uh, Chandra. I wanted to bring you on the podcast because, you know, in the past, I saw a lecture about the future of OMS residencies. And so this podcast episode is focused around residency programs. And during the lecture, you were very thoughtful and insightful on what you see coming for OMS in the future and how we can prepare residents for that future. I think our national organization has done a great job in preparing us for the challenges that are current and in the next you know, five to 10 years. But shaping residencies and shaping residents to practice in that future, I think, is a different topic. And so what challenges do you think residency programs face locally at your program, but also nationally? So that's a fairly uh, loaded question, Marcus, and very thoughtful. So there are multi-factors to that. And uh, the lecture I was referring to in that question, as well as the answer, has ethics, data, the future dream or the future uh, prediction. Some people say you shouldn't predict future, but you should only dream about the future. So similar to that. And uh, what are the unexpected expectations we could uh, see? So unpacking all of those would be a huge uh, effect. But the goal of that entire thing is to train. Say somebody is born in 2020, 2040, when that person in the prime of their maxillofacial career, how would we train that person for? So there is a international consensus uh, data from the Journal of Dental Education, JDEA. Uh, sometime, I think, between 2015 or 2017, they wrote how entire one ep- journal publication was devoted to how do you manufacture the person for a 2040 dentist, meaning being a dentist in 2040, and what are the challenges? In that publication, I saw that there could be as worse as 110% to about 30% excess of dentists if we continue the same trajectory. And as we know, Marcus, most of our uh, maxillofacial trainees are coming from the dental background, especially in the United States. So when you consider training such a person coming from an excess, how many of them would be willing to take oral maxillofacial surgery? And how do you train them? So the spectrum of the you know, rainbow starts there. And then the training, the education changes, the perception of that individual to the educational changes, and the pedagogic skills, that is the teaching skills we need to change. We need to change yesterday as teachers to train that person from coming into that pool about his learning skills. So that's what I was trying to unpack in that lecture. So if you ask me specifically, so it's ethics about the future generation needs, which will be completely different. The future teacher needs to be taught like yesterday or today. And then the data of how the person would practice, that is the environment you would practice in, would be totally different than what it is going to be today. And the surgical skills required with the augmentation of uh, technology, 
further imaging studies, further uh, uh, navigation, everything. So all those would be different. So you need to train the teacher to teach those rather than expect the trainee to be taught. When we talk about the future needs of, let's say, the learner, and then we talk about now the teacher that has to change to adapt to the changes of the learner, but then we're talking also about the societal changes. We're talking about the huge interest in telehealth. We're seeing a large shift of healthcare into at-home consultations with your doctor, surgeons able to consult other surgeons across the country via uh, video. And I don't see you know, residency programs, especially in oral surgery, thinking about or implementing this into our education. For example, I think during COVID, we did do a little bit of telehealth for oral surgery, but will that stay? And is that relevant to, let's say, private practice, which most of residents go into? I agree with you. Telehealth has taken over all our uh, lives. We all got trained in telehealth recently, except for people who have done this as an amateur skill of diagnosing uh, different apps. There have been apps to diagnose oral cancer in developing countries, say, 10 years ago. Uh, we tried to make an app for a global underserved sub-Saharan Africa app for diagnosing uh, head and neck cancers because that's the highest amount of incidence of head and neck cancers is in sub-Saharan Africa. So there has been effort, but now it's come to fruition because of urgent needs and urgent uh, economic-driven uh, needs. Telehealth is going to pay for us now. Before, it was purely amateur or voluntary activity. But maxillofacial surgery as a therapeutic skill is mostly uh, surgical. So it could be diagnostic part of the consultation, or it could be the follow-up part of the consultation, which could be used as telehealth. But I see a problem with all this as a one leading issue would be who owns this data? So a patient sends me a follow-up of a picture of his incision line or his tongue before. So do I own that data or does the hospital or the networking company owns the data or the patient owns the data? Of course, by HIPAA rules, we assume that it is patient's data. The interest in data is very prevalent among entrepreneurs, a lot of coders. I have friends who are working at big coding companies, and they have an obsession with data. And that's because algorithms, AI is able to help surgeons become more free to do the more critical thinking aspect of surgery. And so if we're able to take patient data and you know run research projects or run algorithms to figure out what kind of antibiotic or radiation treatment is the best, you know it does lead to better patient care and more improved access to care and efficiency. But yeah, I think the, the question of who owns the data will be something that we have to answer. Now, do you see with residency programs do you think that these conversations about data acquisition and utilization is applicable? The big data, which is driving the AI, as you rightly said, is published all over. But it's not AI, really. Big data is contributing to what is called as machine learning or machine improvisation of predictability. So before I tell you about how big data is going to change us, there are a couple of things which we know that the big data is not the solution for everything because if something doesn't need an antibiotic and you've been giving the patient antibiotic, that is bad data going into main, you know, the outcome predictability. And then there is something in uh, AI, there are a couple of uh, things called as universality, back propagation, and layering effect or hidden uh, layering effect. These are some things which big data, you need to use that to create all this backpropagation. So backpropagation in AI terms, when you read the AI journals or the, you know, the big data journals, they will tell you, you see the cause and effect, but then sometimes the cause is not giving you the effect. So teeth brushing has been known universally that it is helping everybody. But if the outcome is not multifactorial, then you need to create multiple back channels to go back and look at what's happening in between. Do we need to modify any of this neural network? What type of toothbrushing? Is right-hand toothbrushing better than the left-hand toothbrushing? Or 
you know, similar to mint. It's an analogy, could be a pure analogy, but so such things, back propagation, and then you universalize it by layering multiple data sets. So those are the terminology in AI technology, but we are not there yet. We had data, say for instance, orthognathic surgery. Majority of our studies, the measurements which we have taken are of one particular race, and we impose that on multiple other races or such things. So the data has not gone anywhere in that sense of thing. So acquisition has improved. We have got bigger computers, supercomputers, but the utility of prognostication or the treatment plans have not gotten there as yet. But the problem is with big data, the hospitals can drive you or the insurance companies can drive what you're going to do and which specialty or subspecialty is going to do. So coming back to our original thought of what is it going to be in 2040 for an oral maxillofacial surgeon, this big data and uh, the back propagation of the cause and effect, who's treated this sleep apnea case or who's done this mandible fracture, this should tell which specialist should be doing this. Say so you, you are going to be the teacher in 2040. So I see you, your prime of your career will be then, you know, you come out and 10 years, you learn how to do it. Then you're going to teach everybody how to go, how you're going to do it, Marcus. So who is teaching you to teach for the 2040 generation as you as a 2020 prime surgeon? So is big data helping us right now to be teaching you skills to teach the 2040 student? I think what's difficult with this problem is that technology was almost accidentally introduced to everyone at this exponential rate. Especially, I don't want to date you and me, but uh, especially to your generation, your generation, my parents' generation, didn't grow up with smartphones in their hands. And so it is very confusing for, I think, the previous generation to think about, how do I teach the next generation on how to use technology? Because you had to almost catch up and learn yourself. And it's almost the same problem that parents have nowadays with their children. How do I teach my kid to have a healthy consumption of technology, which they didn't really have to deal with when they were children? So I, I do think about that a lot, about how I can learn from big data, from my mentors, but I don't think all the faculty right now in residency have that knowledge or authority in technology. So can I pause and retrospect there about uh, big data? I'm sure you heard of this uh, book by Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow. One of the things which really strikes me there is, I think there is an instance where he'll tell you there is a nerdy young male walking in the street or something like this uh, who keeps to himself and very nerdy. So he gives you a choice to protect if the person young, white, nerdy male is a farmer or a librarian. Majority of the people say he's a librarian. And, but by data should tell you that there are more number of farmers than librarians in the, in the U.S. So mm -hmm. we should have said he's a farmer rather than a librarian, young, white, male, knowledgeable, nerdy guy. So we've known that, for instance, so that is data. Data will tell you by the number of people in the country he should be a farmer rather than a librarian. The chances of he being a librarian. So Daniel Kahneman, what he's trying to tell you is sometimes big data may not be useful in helping you to make that judgment. It can even put you through a tunnel vision to make the right decision. Sometimes human beings are known to make impulsive decisions or decisions based on what the circumstances around them, like buying a lottery ticket, even though you know, but you still persist to buy it because we do not want to do anything even scientifically proven as wrong. We still keep doing the same thing many a time in many of our actions. So that's what that book brings you to think against big data. Say, for instance, we talked about excess of dentists. I'll tell you, I think uh, Dr. Shahid Aziz's study or uh, he had multiple uh, JMS publications which told you and then there could be one from Vincent Zaccardi and the Texas group too, about if you have to think about a OMS surgeon in the US, and that person was a 32-year-old white male uh, whose annual uh, debt was about 300,000. 
as a chief resident. So this was uh, Andy Salama's study from uh, BU also. So we knew that it is a white 32-year-old male with majority of the programs. I think the BU study reviewed about 1,000 people and they 25% of, uh, I couldn't tell you the exact number, but you will find the study if you say J-O-M-S, and it is from Boston University. One of the author was Andy Salama. And uh, the other study was Shai Aziz from uh, New Jersey. These two papers told you about the gender bias and the socioeconomic status, like the debt they carry, each resident. So we knew this data from past 10 years. But even to date, the enrollment of OMS, say, for instance, women, is very less. I encourage any person, any good dental student, dentistry, majority of them are women. And that's been like that for almost 10 years. But that's not reflected in the OMS residencies. By now, it should have been very evident that there are more women taking up oral maxillofacial surgery. And again, going to the future, 2040 oral maxillofacial surgeon, if you're not enrolling minorities, that is by gender, minorities by uh, race, culture, then the 2040 oral maxillofacial surgeon will not have a representative teacher who should be there in 2020 or 2025. So, Marcus, what I was trying to tie that back again with the big data, even though we knew the data that the 32-year-old white male is the OMS surgeon, we didn't bring that unrepresented factor back into, as I said, you're going to be the teacher in five years. So we wanted the minority to be the teacher so that the teacher is a representative of the sample in 2040. I hope uh, uh, the publications are right. If I think in terms of that big data, then when I think of an oral surgeon, then I should automatically assume that it is probably a private practice OMS who is practicing somewhere in the suburbs. Now, I think that the residency's future is very important to keep our programs and our profession afloat. But it, you know, it seems like this big data is pointing towards that most oral surgeons do go into private practice. And so I sometimes think about the problems that residencies face as, well, is it that relevant if most oral surgeons want to stay in private practice and stay grounded in oral surgery. And I, I think that most residency programs do focus on kind of pushing residencies forward as they should. But then, you know, I, I do think about how the reimbursement for those surgeries are very low. You know, head and neck cancer surgeries are very uh, not lucrative. Orthodontic surgeries are not lucrative anymore due to insurance changes. And I think about an article that Dr. Assel wrote in 2013 about OMS. And he said something along the lines of OMS programs need to float. They need to be a tub that floats on its own bottom. And I think he was referring to how most programs are not funded appropriately. Do you see that being a problem with most residency programs today? Honestly, I couldn't agree with uh, Dr. Assel more. When I was mentioning about the, in the lecture, how to future-proof, the catch word there is the future-proofing of a residency training. Maybe I should title this podcast episode as future-proofing. Yeah. All of us want to future-proof ourselves for the uh, changes which are going to happen. As you rightly said, one phrase I like what you said just now is you want to make the base of the boat bigger. So you want to future-proof resident or a teacher or a provider with the maximum number of skills. He can hone on them later in fellowship or by exposure and delivery of care. Like, you know, when he goes into his community, say, for instance, the person who goes into Cook County Hospital as a provider could hone himself on uh, trauma. Or the person who goes down to upscale Chevy Chase program in Bethesda in the inner city would go for fine oral maxillofacial like Botox and other things. So, but you need to teach majority of the residents multiple skills, so all of it would be future-proofed. So, economic changes, insurance changes, policy changes, you cannot predict all those. Because the big data, as I've said, the hospitals are trying to gobble up majority of the small practices, and that may go with the oral maxillofacial small private practices too. So, if a chain Say, for instance, Clear Choice was recently bought by Aspen Dental. So they will teach the dentist how to play, uh, you know, competition 
even with oral maxillofacial surgeons. I'm not saying that's not wrong. That should be absolutely a good thing. So you should need to teach the future-proof resident a bigger base of surgical skills. So the surgical skills we have dependent on is third molar surgery. And uh, I contribute Mark Engelstad, one of my good friends, I'll tell you, if you are looking at one tooth behind to keep your skills up from second molar to third molar, you're in a bad shape. And uh, that is a great statement I mean, uh, Mark Engelstad has. Similarly, we led the entire orthognathic surgery because we learned how to do sagittal split osteotomies. Now, majority of fellowship-trained sleep apnea surgeons trained from head and neck or otolaryngology background are learning to do sagittal split osteotomies or a plastic surgeon would do an osteotomy. And that niche of orthognathic practice is going away. So you need to come up with something else. So a maxillofacial resident should be trained how to do other things in oral, uh, say, obstructive sleep apnea, doing uh, hypoglossal nerve stimulators or tongue-based reductions with endoscopy or robotic fascial pillar reduction. All this need to be taught. I mean, you need to be available to the needs which are going to be a dream in 40 years, what's going to happen. I think what's very interesting, I think this is kind of what you're pointing towards. And this is a thought that I've actually adopted recently is learning to productize yourself, learning to be ready to sell yourself to a service or to a, a certain type of future. Um, if you just prepare to be an oral surgeon or if you just prepare to be, let's say, a composite dentist, you might be kind of irrelevant in the future as other technologies or other professions arise that can take away that practice. And so, yes, I do agree. I think I do know of otolaryngologists, ENTs in Texas who do orthognathic surgery with, you know, VSPs. And it's very easy now for otolaryng uh, ENTs to do that. For the podcast listeners who are interested in pursuing private practice, doing dental, alveolar, and implant, I still argue that this conversation is very important because, you know, as you said, there are DSOs that are starting to gobble up private practices there are now practice management groups that are starting to uh, partner with private practice groups that now begs the question of, can you run a mom-pop shop of oral surgery? And I would argue in my future, probably not. It's probably very hard now. So then, you know, what can we do to prepare residents now to future-proof themselves? I know you have a very big interest in doing surgeries for like, the transgender population. I know that's been a very big interest in even plastic surgery and ENT. There is no reason that a maxillofacial surgeon not be part of the gender center or the gender uh, surgical expertise because majority of, say, for instance, the Korean-trained surgeons know how to do maloplasties or uh, thyroplasties very easily. It's a thing which is being done for multiple years. So the same can be applied even for uh, gender transformation. So when there is a patient who would come up, I had this uh, wonderful person I met in one of the practices earlier, and he wanted me to do a chin reduction. How many hundreds of chin reductions I have done? And when the insurance company denies me doing a chin reduction for gender changes, then, you know, it hurts. So you want to make yourself as a maxillofacial speciality be there as one of the gender transformation or facial transformation for any, you know, body dysphoria or whatever reason. So you should be part of that. And for that, you need to train our trainees like you or the younger ones, how to do from a thyroplasty to a frontal brow reduction to all this. They have simply done. We've already have the tools, but we need to sit at the table where the gender center opens so that you can render the services for them. Only then you will get identified as one of the provider for this gender change. It's not that these skills we do not have. We have these skills, but we need to apply it for some particular reason or the solution. It seems like the boundaries of a profession or the boundaries of what an oral surgeon or a plastic surgeon has traditionally done is going away. I've seen people in Florida who are oral surgeons trained in cleft lip and palate, cranial facial, and they sit on craniofacial teams with neurosurgery or an, and with ENT. And I see that in dentistry as well. Oral surgery scope is being infiltrated by other professions, and rightly so, as people get more trained. 
and oral surgery themselves have also put ourselves into head and neck services and so on. Now, it seems like the profession that you're in, the surgery scope that you have traditionally have been defined by is not as important anymore. It seems to be the core of what we are. We are at core oral surgeons, but it seems like the future that you're talking about is preparing yourself to be on different teams that solve a problem like gender transitioning or cleft lip and palate. Now, I think a lot of the listeners will be very curious, Dr. Chandra, about how, you know, we talk about, oh, we should do this and this for programs, expand the scope of training and so on. But how can we actually do that? Do we hire more oral surgeons that are dual fellowship trained like many people? Or do we hire into an oral surgery program, do we hire a plastic surgeon to be on faculty? Do we hire an ENT person? Or do we just have to collaborate with other departments more and more in residency programs? There are three aspects to that answer. I'll tell you the dream first. So American Head and Neck Society could be hosted by the American Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgeons in a combined meeting. Or the American Cleft and Craniofacial Conference has a joint conference with American Association of Oral Maxillofacial Surgeons. We always have two countries coming together. Instead of that, you can have two specialities, see where the meeting horizon is. So come together in that fashion. That's one thing. Second thing is cleft surgery, for instance, from the place I trained in. I trained in Bangalore, India. I mean, we have one of the biggest cleft center training center in the world right now in the training program I came from. I mean, two dedicated or three dedicated cleft surgeons, a couple of them duly qualified. But I'm saying this, I've been trained by singly qualified surgeons whom I've learned oncology. I've done cleft and craniofacial surgery with them who can do posterior wall correction with a single degree. It's the same. It's not about degrees again. That's a separate chapter again. So international exposure of another region does the same thing I have a friend and colleague in Africa who can do a complete uh, skull-based resection and reconstruction with minimal things. So what we need is exposure. So I have to have our residents go there or have him on faculty here and make that happen, the uh, duality of training where the need is. And the... Number three, yes, you rightly said a program where I trained in one of our fellowship program in Jacksonville had... Uh, Dr. Fernandez had uh, Nelson Goldman, who was an ENT surgeon in the faculty, who would round with us every morning and uh, who could teach you how to do a tongue-based biopsy or a laryngectomy in the Department of Maxillofacial Surgery. So there have been neurosurgeons in Bangalore where I trained in our department who teach you how to do a craniectomy or a cranioplasty or skull-based axis. So you rightly said you can't have the entire neurosurgeon in an OMS team because neurosurgeon is expensive. You cannot <laughs> hire him for that. But spend quality time in a neurosurgery research lab or a neurosurgery simulation lab or publish and develop a good working relationship with a neurosurgeon. When I was faculty at Harborview, I had a good practice of doing all their craniplasties, skull scalp re, uh, reconstructions and skull-based exposures with a neurosurgeon. So you need to have that uh, reciprocity of respect where you know you could do everything for them. So that's how you improve the technological know-how or the repertoire of uh, the future resident. Yeah, I can't imagine residency programs hiring a neurosurgeon to be on the team. I think a lot of residency programs uh, have limited funding already. Now, we talk about this international exposure. We talk about having exposure to other teams to then learn about their surgery. I know here at my program, OHSU, we work a lot with the, the ENT chair. His name is Dr. Uh, Wax. And so I don't think he's officially on our faculty, but we do interact with him on a very regular basis. And so we get very proficient at doing flaps, at doing head and neck resections. But we still call ourselves oral surgeons and they still call us oral surgeons, but we are very good colleagues in collaboration of head and neck cancers. A challenge that I see is how do we standardize this among residency programs? It seems like one, funding's an issue. Two, not all residency programs need to have exposure to head and neck. 
or cleft lip and palate. Maybe cleft lip and palate prevalence or incidence is very low in that area. And so you don't need to have these teams there. Secondly, or, or rather thirdly, hiring faculty to train the residents to do these surgeries is going to be extremely difficult. I think the number of fellowship trained OMS is a minority in the field. So then I'm very interested in uh, hearing about your opinions on how residency programs across the whole country can kind of adapt this change because that would shape the next generation of residents. Just like I told you one dream about the American um, uh, Skull Bay Society coming along with the American Association of Oral Maxillofacial Surgeons to have a same conference, one of my dream is we have a standardized rotations where a resident from, say, Midland, Texas can come to OHSU or come to Nebraska and mm-hmm. spend time for three months and uh, be a regular resident. So we have a flip-flop between exchange program between two in the same country, two different regions with two different strengths. If somebody can get exchange, say Dr. Hongwen can go to Jacksonville for four months and you come when somebody else comes from there. The reason I say this is that would standardize everything as training. Inner city New York programs or West Coast programs, which occasionally, they have, each one has their strengths. They can learn from another program. Cleft lip and palate surgery or head and neck surgery is essential for the maxillofacial training because it's not that you would need to treat a cleft lip every day, but the skills you learn from that can be applied to multiple other uh, areas. So I think if you don't have a person who can do cleft in, say, Oregon, so we can easily organize you to exchange yourself for three months to go to a center with high volume where you can get the basics, enough knowledge so that you could easily do some amount of cleft lip surgery if it is in a different, say, format. You know, in uh, Say, for instance, I'll give you the instance of Nebraska. Nebraska, for some reason, has a cleft and craniofacial exposure very high because the plastic dually trained maxillofacial surgeon, plastic surgery trained craniofacial surgeon works still with the maxillofacial team to train all our residents with cleft and craniofacial. So every person coming out from Nebraska know what a cleft lip and palate is and they know how to do it. So that is something which is a possibility, as you said, if you can train a cleft surgeon, hire a cleft surgeon as faculty, you can have a cleft collaboration with another center which does a high volume. It seems like that'd be a lot easier than to hire someone at OHSU. It'd definitely be a lot cheaper as long as the resident is willing to travel there and, and so on. I guess that complicates it if you have family, but you know it's something we have to be used to in healthcare. So what about the dental aspect of our profession? Oral surgery, I love oral surgery. I love orthognathics, head and neck. I love our exposure to that. But I still love doing third molars, sedations, implants, all on four zygomas. And if we refer to our other specialties in dentistry, there are many perio programs that do a lot more of that than oral surgery programs. And do you think that collaboration between OMS and let's say perio or pros? those kind of rotations would then lead to this future-proofing of our uh, residents? Yes. So that vision I see should come from the dental school itself. In the dental school, a person who wants to go to, say, OMS program or a perio program, which are fairly closely linked, you could say studies about tissue inflammation, studies about bone regeneration, studies about biomaterials, studies about uh, navigation, with uh, zygomatic implants has a common training pathway. So then you're contributing as a maxillofacial training as a surgeon. I would be training the dental student to be a good periodontist by improving his skills as a good person who can give sedation, analgesia, anxiolysis, all this. So a maxillofacial colleague should be training or aiding a periodontist to develop well So you have a collaboration with the periodontist and learn dually. It's always not neurosurgeon and OMS. It can be an OMS and a periodontist have a very symbiotic relationship where you teach them how to graft a iliac crest graft or, uh, you know, anxiolysis, which could be fantastic for the periodontist to carry on with his uh, soft tissue flaps. 
So that should come from the dental school model. And we should have been having those common internships or other things where a periodontist comes and spends time with the maxillofacial training program. And I see very few periodontists coming or welcome in a maxillofacial training program later in their residency. I hope that happens. I do feel periodontists have the edge over maxillofacial surgery by fundamental research. In terms of implant research, I think many oral surgeons I've talked to have said that they even refer to perio journals for information. And even with me, I supplement my oral surgery textbook reading, which I don't do enough, but I do read a, a very famous book in implant dentistry by a periodontist. Uh, it's called Zero Bone Loss. It's been a very, I would say, revolutionary book in, in dentistry. And going back to what you said about cross-training, having a periodontist come and train with OMS, having an OMS come train with a periodontist, I think that's very helpful because I miss that collaboration that I had in dental school. And I have that collaboration now in medical school where I collaborate with internal medicine or with renal. And it helps not only the efficiency of care, because I don't have to study up on how to treat a chronic kidney disease stage three. I can just do a consultation and kind of get that collaborative effort. And I get this benefit right now. I help run like a study club that I'm in with dentists, uh, now a PROS uh, resident. And I learn so much about delivering care and treatment and the options that I have. Now, let me ask you, I don't know if you have an opinion about this. Do you think that these collaborative rotations should be a required thing for all residents, or do you think it should be an, an optional thing? So we, in all oral maxillofacial training, run into time issues, the ACAGME requirements, uh, licensing issues, and all those. Keeping those separate, there are core competencies of every maxillofacial surgeon which are to be taught, and after that, it should be optional. So you could go for a research module, or you could go for a neurosurgery, or you could go for a patient with what you call alternative medicine, or if you want to go do anything. We are not learning surgery in one year. We are not learning medicine in two years. So we may just skim the surface. So we need to have mentors. That's where the mentorship comes into play. Mentors for dental students, mentors for early residents, Mentors for junior faculty, mentors for senior faculty. Just because some faculty has been there 20 years doesn't mean that he can be a mentor. Just because you graduated from a residency program doesn't mean that, you know, you have the board certification. That doesn't mean that you could go on do, a, say, for instance, a coronidectomy or, you know, coronectomy, for instance. Maybe it was never taught in your residency. So that's where mentorship comes into play. And that mentor early in dental school can guide you through collaborations with Perio if you're interested, collaborations with a pediatric syndromic patient or collaboration with uh, an embryologist. How often does an embryologist or an anatomist come into a maxillofacial training program and tells you about eight different types of uh, uh, nasal apertures or the piriform fossa of the nose? He could be a good rhinoplasty surgeon but occasionally there are anatomists who could contribute later in life after different experiences. So mentorship is what comes into play. And that's the biggest thing we would look for and seek for. It's this dedication to lifelong learning that, that you are hoping to inspire into not only your residents, but also the listeners on the show. My episode with Dr. Engelstad, he said something along the lines of, if you don't change, you die. And that sounds a little morbid, but it does apply, I think, to many things. I think even if we think think about, let's say, technology, like we talked about in the earlier part of our conversation, if you don't adapt to the changes that come, you become irrelevant or you might be left behind. Now, your future that you see is all about collaboration. Where do we start to start implementing this into our programs, into our dental schools? Yes, we need to have new mentors mentors trained to give us that perspective. And you are one of them. You are a unique individual that does make me think about these topics. But the United States is huge. There's a lot of oral surgeons and there are a lot of oral surgeons who might not find this to be that relevant to them in the future or anymore. How do we gain support for the funding to do this and then the movement to inspire mentors to, to think this way? I'll tell you two words which uh, keeps me lifelong learning. One is 
I will never get a call from Stockholm. I will not get that surprise ever. Meaning the Nobel Committee is not called any dental student so far, or at least, or a you dental student. the first one. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think that's going to happen, 100% sure. But that humility, that, you know, modesty is glaring to say that I'm not going to be that person from the Nobel Committee. So when I have that humility, I do not know very much. So, for instance, the last five years of the omics, I don't know whether you come across the terminology called omics. Geniomics. You should define that, yeah. Geniomics, proteomics, metabolomics. There is an entire blooming knowledge base on all this. We knew genetic makeup. Say, for instance, the first genetic makeup was code decoded in for 13 years. Now you can do it in a few minutes, you know, the PCR to the mRNA vaccine and stuff like that. So when such brilliance of work is going around you as a maxillofacial surgeon, that keeps me grounded hum- and humble that we need to learn a lot more. So that's when collaborations automatically develop. So I go and sit in the conference, which is only about genetics, because majority of our tumors, what you're talking about, are rare tumors. Amyloblastoma, the most commonest maxillofacial cell, it's still considered a rare tumor. So we should have a rare tumor registry of how people do it. So that's when collaborations come up. For instance, I work with my vascular surgeon currently doing all his amputations because what I'm learning in the amputations in the targeted muscle reinnovation is adapting nerves to a different segment of muscle to reduce phantom pain. So that may help me at some point of time to do maybe a good facial reanimation or a good face transplant. I mean, not that I would ever be part of face plant transplant team, but you learn another technique. Vascular surgeons, orthopedic surgeons. I mean, you could go learn various things. Navigation from an ENT surgeon. So only if you're collaborative, you will succeed and future-proof yourself. That is coming from very humble, imposed humility many a time that you don't know much. And you should seek out knowledge in other people. There's also saying at the same time, for a new idea, read an old book. So always keep reading. I think that's very interesting. I like that quote you just said. Uh, for a new idea, uh, read an old book. And the reason why I like that is when you have an old problem, it's usually an old solution, right? When you have a, this sounds very weird to talk about on the podcast, when you have a relationship, a love problem, you look to the old historic text to see how to kind of solve that relationship problem. Now, and I agree with you. I think collaboration, looking to other fields is very important. I have a mentor of mine who's extremely good at sedations, very good at sedations. I would say one of the best that I have uh, met, not only because he's good at them efficiently and, and technically, but his knowledge of how to deal with differences in people, the reactions of people is just phenomenal. And he told me he got that training because he read a lot of British JOMS journals about sedations. He also went to collaborate with outpatient GI to see how they do sedations because they've been doing it for decades. And so that collaboration is definitely huge. So I, I do want to ask you though, the transition time of having mentors to teach residents to think in this manner, to foster residents to think in this manner as they are in residency right now or in dental school, it will take some time. Do you have any advice for residents who are listening right now on how they can become a more collaborative surgeon in their residency program? Because most programs in the country don't have a collaborative model where they are on cleft lip and palate teams or head and neck surgery teams. That's a, a big question to unpack, how to collaborate with other people. I'll tell you the best time I've learned is, you know, in the old, uh, I trained in England for some time. We used to have a common coffee room for all specialities, all trainees, where we would come in the morning, grab coffee or tea. Uh, there would be cereal, uh, fruit, everything. So everybody would sit around at the same time. Nights, you would spend at the same time, in the same place, in the same couch. Everybody would sleep on the same couch. And I developed a lot of uh, uh, friendships around the vascular surgeon. I can tell you 9-11 was happening. And 
I was everybody was glued to the TV and this attending or the senior uh, registrar did not have a resident who would uh, do a proctorectomy for him at the same time. So I said, yeah, I'll do the proctorectomy and the jaw dislocation for a, a carotid exposure. And then, you know, that was the, you know, such was the friendships. That was a, what do you call, they didn't have social media, but you could corner around the same fireplace chat and you developed relationships. So how do you do it now? So what you do is go uh, make friends with people who are completely in a, say, speech and swallow specialist or a person who's in a diabetic clinic or an endoscopy clinic, just as you said, learn how to do endoscopes or learn how to go to the anatomy lab and keep dissecting with the anatomist, you know, who does the prosections late in the night. So in University of Washington, that what I did, that's what I did. Late in the night, I would go do prosections. And I had every skull base approach in pictures in the prosections. So could be a good anatomy teacher. So go to neurosurgery uh, conferences, attend uh, online. A lot of Khan Academy has it, Harvard X or EX has a lot of conferences. There are a lot of uh, PubMed, around PubMed, there are a lot of videos how to do a... So none of those were taught when we were young. Like, as you said, rightly my age, we didn't have email, we didn't have uh, all those when we trained, but that's how collaborative work with different people I'll tell you one sentence which is very applicable even now is Murray Foster was one attending in England, in Manchester, when I trained. His one sentence was, Srini, never go home when everybody is going home. Always go through the emergency room and see if they need any help from you. So I would add one more sentence to that. Go through the operating room or the emergency room. They'll always need an extra hand. So you can go retract for a GI surgeon. I did that for a urology surgeon for a lot of times. So how to do cystoscopies and other things. So or go to the emergency room, how to relocate a shoulder. Then relocating a mandible will become very easy for you. It's not that how they talk to people. How do the nurses interact with the belligerent people? So it's not necessary that you always have to go scrub. You can go stand in the emergency room and see how nurse practitioners or uh, CRNAs do different stuff of sedation. So you'll learn. So don't go home when everybody goes home. Go through the emergency room or the operating room would be my advice for that. You're going to have now an army of oral surgery residents offering to go help uh, the GI surgeons now after this podcast. You know, I was going to ask you this question because I was thinking about it but it seems like you've answered it. Maybe you can elaborate more. What I was going to ask is, we have all this exposure. You're recommending residents be exposed. Go to neurosurgery conferences. Go to radiology conferences, which I do. I actually benefit a lot from going to neuroradiology conferences. But then what about the application aspect? The problem with online learning or just exposure, like Khan Academy, you don't get that practice of applying to really solidify the knowledge into your personal experience. What can we do for application of this knowledge for these residents? And you did mention one, go retract for a GI surgery. Do you have any other recommendations? Applications would be promote yourself. Say you would come and talk to the ENT surgeon about occlusion or the plastic surgeon about occlusion. It can start. If you want to listen. <laughs> no, I mean, make yourself humble enough that they would be open to inviting you. So humility breaks a lot of barriers. And uh, many a time being quiet is the right thing to do in the room. Then they recognize where they would need you at the right time. All, there's always be a right time where they will need you. I will tell you, there was a uh, oculoplastic conference or a conference many years ago and most of the nebraska people were all gone and there was a young kid with a acute injury avulsion of a a medial canthus and uh, we needed to just put a ocular stent in that patient so nobody knew but you know that day one nurse who had seen you do it with somebody else uh, she called me and said do you mind helping this person with this so wait for a break and uh, so 
majority of the time, if you are loaded and on the sideline, somebody will ask you to come in and help. So when I said about going to the emergency room and learning how to put a splint on, you learned how to put a splint on for a fibrillator or a radial forearm or a fracture. That's how you learn it. So initially, that's how people have learned different techniques. I'll tell you one technique which I learned after being with the urologist, after using a lot of uh, urethral sounds. That's how I use that to do my uh, scalp expanders, tissue expanders in the scalp. I use the urethral sounds and I put that in and uh, that helps me. So, so you learn different techniques by watching and helping other people. So to sum up, I guess as we approach our hour, Dr. Chandra, the problem that we see in OMS residencies is that we need to prepare for future-proofing our surgeons. And your recommendations to future-proof ourselves is to expand our scope, be cross-trained, be exposed to different teams of specialists. And for the current residents, do as much as you can to collaborate, reach out to your dental colleagues, reach out to your previous dentist friends who that probably you don't contact as much anymore and ask them for advice and ask them for perspective, which I also support as well. As we end this conversation, do you have anything else you want to talk about? No, I mean, two lines to add to that collaboration or uh, uh, serendipity. Like, remember, Debeki, Michal Debaki, his mother was a seamstress. That's how he became the best surgeon, stitching what his mother taught, what he brought into vascular surgery. So, and the concept about even if you're good at something, majority of the people may laugh at you right now, but you put out a paper or a technical note or a thought, someday some bright person like you will read it and then will understand it and at least one patient is helped. That is great, Dr. Chandra. You have said the word mentor many times on this podcast. Do you have any mentors you want to do a little shout out for or thank? Yeah, I have a lot of mentors and uh, I'm uh, very grateful for each one of them. So from my dental school till today, I did text him even last night, is a mentor called uh, Sanjeev Nair. I'm just about, uh, I'm not pitching my book, but I'm just about finishing a project with him. So from the <laughs> third year of dental school. So Kishore Nayak and Sanjeev Nair are the two people who trained me in Bangalore. They still keep in touch with me and I do owe a lot to them. And my English mentors, Bob Woodwards, Malcolm Bailey, uh, Peter Blankensop is no more. You know, these people did train me. And uh, Ron Lee was one of my senior residents who employed me afterwards, was a good mentor. And the shout out was for Ron Lee, who taught me how to golf, actually. Yeah. <laughs> he was my chief resident and he employed me. And then I used to stay at his house, drove his car, ate his food, and... Uh, do all his uh, locums when he would uh, take vacation so so i did uh, and then my current mentors in the u.s are again uh, rui fernandez i mean i owe a lot to him phil Purgis, nelson goldman these people have been amazingly good so marcus i have to tell you these are surgical mentors but there are people who teach you uh, other things in esoteric ways in various things it could be your patient or it could be your friend it could be a lot of other things so the shout out is you can't name there are so many other people you seek a mentor in a lot of people and try to emulate them so that you could be that person for another upcoming surgeon or some other person so thank you for uh, giving me the chance to do the shout out to all of them Thank you. Of course. I mean, I think mentors are huge. I think I have a recent mentor that I met in internal medicine rotation, and he taught me the skill of silence with patients and to give them space to feel their emotions and to understand what they're going through. And I really appreciate that. And maybe it might not make me a better oral surgeon clinically or with my hands, but as a clinician, it definitely has shaped who I am. Uh, do you have anywhere that you want to direct people to, uh, an email or an Instagram account? I don't know if you do that, but... Email would be wonderful. And uh, some things should be personal uh, when we talk to each other. And uh, my email, you can share my email. It goes by S-R-I-N-I, Srini, R, Chandra, 
four at gmail.com would be a wonderful email to email me. And I do reply to most of my emails. Awesome. What is your favorite uh, operating room song? That's a difficult question for... That's the difficult question? <laughs> yes. I would like the songs which I would love to listen are uh, two things. I'm sure you heard of uh, Raul's Bolero, which is a stochastic, you know, I wish I can play that Raul, uh, you know, the drumming beat constantly. And it has got this stochastic note to it, but not everybody would like me. But the music which I could play, I don't think anybody, it's mostly old uh, Hindi music or Urdu from Sahir Ludhianvi's music. But I couldn't play that here. Uh, it's uh, old uh, Bollywood music, which I grew up with. But for now... <laughs> I love playing Shakira, where uh, my mentor uh, Fernandez and uh, Pergusius would listen to under the microscope all the time. Shakira would be lovely. I did not expect uh, Shakira out of your mouth. That is very uh, amusing and very uh, humbling as well. Uh, Dr. Chandra, well, it, was, it was great talking to you, and I can't wait to you know, expand more on this conversation. I think that your contribution here has definitely changed many of the hearts and minds of my listeners, so thank you. I appreciate you, Marcus. 